Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Reese Show, where we interview experts to help you understand where technology is headed and how it will impact society as a whole and also your daily life. Thanks so much for learning with us and enjoy the episode. Today, I chat with Steve Shu, who's this amazing polymath from Michigan State University. And we're doing this series right now on the show about rewriting all of biology. And today we chat about rewriting ourselves. And so Steve is the leader of a genetic testing company. And so we chat about, you know, the bioethics of designer babies. And he has this great perspective on how uh, it will create some short-term inequality, but hopefully long-term equality. We also chat about cancel culture. And Steve was canceled at uh, Michigan State University for simply engaging with genetics. You know, he was showing how, you know, genes, you know, can show us that Northern Europeans are three inches taller than Southern Europeans. And that opens up this Pandora's box where we have genetic markers for all kinds of things that are then associated with bioregions, which are then associated with race. And so that connects genetic markers to race. And it's a very touchy subject, of course. And Steve touched it and got reprimanded for it. So it's cool to hear his personal perspective there. Anywho, enjoy this episode on genetic testing and cancel culture. Thanks. Steve, thanks for being on the show and welcome. My pleasure. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, excited to dive in. And um, Steve and I are going to chat mostly today about just kind of genetic screening and how genes are going to be changing and human genes and other genes are changing in the next kind of 10 or 50 years. And we're also going to chat a little bit about um, kind of, you know, council culture on, uh, you know, university campuses these days because he kind of went through that himself. Um, but we'll start with the kind of um, genetic side. And so maybe, Steve, just for you, connecting all those things, what is the through line that ties all your work together? You're a physicist, but you also are into genetics and neuroscience, but you're also into engaging with public debate. What's what's going on? <laughs> uh, you know, I guess one thread here is that I, I'm a very curious person with broad interests. But the other thread is basically just math. So theoretical physics, computational genomics, um, the earlier tech startups that I founded in Silicon Valley were all in uh, security. So they were all in encryption technology and things like this. So the, the common thread in there is math and the application of mathematics to the world around us. Cool. That's cool. And then how does that connect then to the like um, public debate and like, you know, that side of things? Well, you know, I'm not really the kind of guy who seeks out public debate. Actually, if you, if you read, maybe some of my critics will disagree with me, but if you read my blog, you'll, which I've been writing since 2004, so I guess 18 years now, you'll see it's pretty data-driven uh, scientific discussions of, you know, sometimes the discussions are social science, uh, which, you know, people tend to have uh, sharper feelings about that than they would about, say, quarks or something or black holes. But... Uh, you know, I'm pretty rational and data-driven and scientific in my approach. Now, the issue that I think is going to occupy a big chunk of our conversation, which is uh, genomics and where human genetics is going and human reproduction, uh, that elicits strong emotions. And so people have actually, I would say, somewhat irrational views on this. And so, you know, they would uh, attack you just for bringing up some particular science, scientific hypothesis and um, so that leads me into debates, but I, I'm generally not the kind of person who seeks out debates. Yeah, no, I love that. It's kind of like your interest. And as you said, if you, I, I was looking through your blog before this and all the things, yeah, it's just like, here's another graph and here's a graph. And what about this graph? It's like, yeah, it's all kind of data-driven random stuff. Yeah. And, um, but your interest in that kind of, as you say, because it gets into this thing that's more touchy for folks that it kind of leads you into the, the intensity of, of online internet culture. Um, so let's kind of, dive into some of the specifics, as you said, around, um, you know, genetics and, and genetic risk scores. And just to kind of um, frame it for you and for our listeners, you know, for me, my interest here is a little bit around this book I'm writing around what information wants and how, you know, genes created the tree of life and the biosphere. And now memes, a new replicator have created um, the tree of ideas. And thinking further than that, it's like, okay, how does our current state of having computers and intense science, how does that gonna how's that gonna change genes in the biosphere in the next you know you know two hundred or you know like twenty years? How do you think about that question? Um, what are we gonna be doing to the genes of ourselves and, and anybody else? So we're at a very special inflection point in 
not just human history, but the history of all species on Earth, because we're finally tech, our technology is finally enabling us to take control over our own DNA, our own genetic makeup. And so I think if you if you look back at this short period of time, maybe the next 50 to 100 years, people will see it as an inflection point in human evolution. And, uh, you know, they will look back and say, okay, prior to this point, humans were actually just kind of like animals. They were reproducing in a kind of random fashion, uh, maybe reacting to selection pressure from the environment, but evolving very slowly and certainly not in any um, intentional way. But for the first time now, we, we actually fully, almost fully understand uh, how information is passed from one generation to another through DNA. And we can make non-trivial predictions about an individual based only on their DNA. And we can, we are starting to be able to edit safely and effectively our own DNA. So, um, you know, I think very huge changes are at hand and uh, it's, it's very good. The reason I always come on these shows, I always say yes when people invite me for interviews or uh, when I, journalists want to talk to me, even if I know, like in the case of some journalists, they're very, uh, very against this kind of research. Um, I always want to talk to them because I think all of this powerful technology needs to be in the hands of a democratic system where the interests of all the people are taken into account and we collectively come to smart, rational uh, conclusions about how this technology should be applied or not applied. And so, but the first step for that is education for people to learn about what these technologies are and how they work. Yeah. I love that. I think, as you said, I mean, this massive, I've heard it called like, just like there's the Copernican turn when we went from a uh, geocentric world to a heliocentric, um, you, you know, solar system, we have this informational turn, which is like, oh man, now we understand that like information underlies everything and it, uh, DNA underlies everybody, all of us. And that, you know, Watson, Crick and Franklin or whatever in the fifties, when they found that out now that we can actually not just sequence it, but now start to read it and write it and cut it and paste it. That's gonna, that's a big, big change both for ourselves and the rest of the biosphere. So I agree with the like importance of the moment. Let's talk about the second piece though, of what you just said there, which is, and maybe, you know, specifically around, you know, polygenic, um, you know, risk scores and that kind of thing. Maybe the best thing to do for myself and the audience would just be say, hey, can you explain for us what we're starting to do with babies now and how we can kind of um, not just check for Down syndrome, but also do a more general check for what's going on? Well, um, let me take a step back and just pose the question this way. I'm sure people starting from when they were students at school heard all kinds of things about decoding the genome, right? Uh, that encompasses a lot of stuff. So around 2000, we read out the first human genome. So we sequenced the first human genome. But only now, 20 years later, are we able to actually make predictions about the personal uh, characteristics of an individual human based on their DNA. And we won't talk about it much on this show, but there are sort of parallel advances both in plant biology and also in domestic agriculture, our ability to predict properties of domestic uh, animals like chickens and pigs and cows based on their genomics alone. So all of that together is decoding the genome. And, and if you think about it, it's like, what was all this for if we couldn't eventually figure out how the DNA blueprint is not a perfect analogy, but how the DNA blueprint guides how the organism develops. And if we didn't eventually figure that out, what was all this for? Yet people act really surprised when we apply very powerful computers, very powerful algorithms to huge data sets involving, say, a million humans and their genomes. And then we figure out, oh, you know what? I can just look at your DNA. And if I know the state of your DNA at these 10,000 places, my program can figure out how tall you're going to be plus or minus three centimeters. And that's the current state of affairs, which, which really shocked people when it finally happened. I mean, actually, even most people are not aware that we can do these things now. But, uh, you know, what was this all for? Of course it was going to happen. So if you're a science fiction buff, you, you, you're you this future timeline of like how the human civilization is going to evolve. And, and you can just say like, oh, we're here. We're like where the early Star Trek uh, novel, novels were or something, and we still haven't gotten here. 
So in one sense, it's not surprising that we got here, but um, now society has to understand what this technology is capable of, of, of and make decisions about how we should use it. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think, yeah, and as you say, it's like, yeah, we've done all this work. We didn't just co- decode the genome to like look at it. <laughs> Exactly. It's That's like we're going to start to use it for stuff, you know, and so and, and so for you know, polygenic screening, my kind of understanding and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, it's like you kind of look at all these different genes and determine, oh, it's height or it's, but but the more important ones, especially right now, are like things like schizophrenia or the ones I understand, heart disease, diabetes, things where you can kind of look at different you make let's call it four embryos and i think that this happened recently maybe in 2021 i think i read on your blog um that was the first polygenic screening we this woman looked at four embryos she chose the one that had the least high um chance of heart disease and diabetes or whatever um is that kind of how this is going to work or and how does your company kind of your life view slash genomic prediction uh, actually do that kind of work yes yeah, so the the let me first talk about the core science which doesn't have to be applied in IVF. It could be applied in a lot of other contexts. But roughly speaking, we now have data sets where you have, just to pick a ballpark number, you have 100,000 people in the data set who reach the age of 80 without having heart disease. And then you have maybe some smaller number, like 50,000 people in your sample who have heart disease. And you use a machine learning or AI algorithm to train itself to classify people according to their risk for uh, heart disease based on that data. And you can do that for heart disease. You can do it for diabetes. You can try to predict people's heights, all those things. And so now we have predictors that just to, just to give a kind of general understanding to your audience, they are not perfect predictors. So height is very accurate. We can predict height plus or minus about an inch, uh, three centimeters, However, for other conditions like heart disease, generally we're able to do something very crude, like put people into buckets where some small percent of the population is very low risk. They're probably never going to have heart disease. There's some middle group that kind of have normal risk. And then there's another group of high risk outliers that have, they could have five or 10 times the probability of a typical person of having heart disease. So you can basically estimate risk for any individual based on very specific regions of the genome that have been identified as either contributing to higher risk or, or reducing risk. Those are called polygenic scores. And they don't have to be used in reproduction. They could be used in a clinical setting where, uh, for example, we've now identified uh, risk for breast cancer. Uh, which applies to a huge number of women. So uh, what was first figured out about breast cancer was they're very impactful single gene mutations that could cause you to be at super high risk. And and some women, for example, I don't know if you know, Angelina Jolie had both of her breasts removed because she was, she carried two copies of a high, of a risk uh, increasing uh, rare mutation. So that, that was already known that there were some women who were carriers of these so-called BRCA uh, gene variants. But now we can look at the polygenic nature of someone's entire genome, and we can actually find 10 times as many women in the population who are high risk for breast cancer than the old than the old technology, which could only identify these very, very rare women, one in a thousand who have these rare mutations. Now we can class, we can classify the risk for every woman, and we find about 10 times as many women that are at similar risk to say what Angel- Angelina Jolie would have been had she not had the radical mastectomy. So that's kind of the situation. Now, you, you, where, how would you apply that? You might apply that <clears throat> to 30-year-old women and say uh, you find a 30-year-old woman who's high risk because of polygenic uh, variants in her, in her DNA. And you might say, okay, you should maybe get a mammogram earlier than we normally. Normally, women don't start getting mammograms until they're 40, and you should start now because you're high risk. So <clears throat> there are many, many applications of polygenic risk scores, which have nothing to do with reproduction. But now let's go to the context of reproduction where you're going through IVF, you have a certain number of embryos. It's typical for families to have multiple viable embryos. That's the typical situation. And so most IVF couples are confronting what we call the embryo choice problem. They have to make a choice. Which of these embryos is going to become their child? So they have to confront that choice. Now, you could confront that choice with zero information and then effectively just make a random choice. Or you might 
for example, have the whole genome of each of the embryos and all the polygenic scores of each of those embryos and make a selection based on much more knowledge, much more information about each embryo. And we think the latter situation is preferable to the former situation. And so that is the technology that we've developed. Now, let me come back to this breast cancer issue. So it already is common for embryos to be genetically screened. So about two thirds of all of the, you know, roughly of order a million embryos produced in the United States each year are genetically screened. The most common screen is against chromosomal abnormality. So that's a kind of gross genetic problem. Um, the most, co- the most uh, well-known variant of that is trisomy 21, which leads to Down syndrome. Yeah. It's also common for families that know they are carriers of a rare genetic variant, like in this, the one that we mentioned already, BRCA, families that know they are carriers for risk-enhancing BRCA variants will often screen their embryo and say, okay, let's implant one that doesn't carry the mutation because that girl will have normal breast cancer risk, not super high breast cancer risk. So polygenic scores are just a further extension of that. So we already screen for gross chromosomal abnormalities. We already screen against known rare mutations that people are carrying. And now finally, we can screen against, oh, you got lucky because the, you got unlucky because these 1,000 different locations in your genome which control your breast cancer risk, you happen to have an excess of the plus risk uh, inducing variants. And uh, that, so that, that little girl is going to be at high risk like Angelina Jolie. So let's implant the other embryo that we have. Yeah. So, yeah. so it, it's a continuum almost of just more and better prediction based on the only thing that you know about that embryo at this stage, which is its DNA. You don't know yeah. anything else about it, right? So it's, it's only a hundred cells, right? So you <laughs> just hang so, it. Yeah. Yeah. So the way I'm saying it now, it's it, to me, it's, it's, it's how could you criticize this? Because first of all, why should the parents who are going to make a choice, why should they be forced to make a choice with no information when very inexpensively we can give them an entire workup of each of their embryos and everything that's known about the DNA and the future probabilities that are implied by that DNA for the individual child. And so, so, you know, to me, again, like you, 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 I think you, you kind of identified me as maybe involved in some controversial debates, but from my perspective, and this, I think this is actually backed up by the feelings of most parents who are going through IVF and most IVF doctors is that more information is better than less information Generally, I mean, if, if as long as you help the parents understand, you don't want to just like throw a, you know, the, 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 the genetic reports that are, you know, our software generates on each embryo are huge. And you don't want to just throw that at the parents. What It's actually discussed in detail with the parents by a certified genetic counselor. But what, once they have the right framing and the background to understand the information, it's always better in my mind for them to have more information than less about their own, what will potentially become their child. Now, all kinds of people at this point, their hair is on fire and they're yelling at their screen and they're saying, this Steve Shue guy is really evil. How can he possibly endorse this? But it's it's nuts. You know, like most IVF families, given the option, would say, yeah, I'd really like to have more information to make this choice I'm going to have to make anyway. Mm-hmm. So that that's my uh, summary of the situation. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I'm sure I kind of pop some things off the stack there. A, I think calling it the embryo choice problem is a really good way to show that you're not, um, it, there's a choice that has to be made here, you know, and you can either choose to roll the dice or you can choose to like use the information you have. Um, I like how you just, you know, differentiate between using, you know, polygenic, um, you know, risk scores or whatever, polygenic screening either you can use it more generally for someone when they're 30 or 40 and say, Oh, do you, are you at a high risk of breast cancer? Or you can use it at the reproduction stage and say, Hey, in an IVF, let's kind of, um, you know, uh, affect the embryo itself. And then I, uh, what you said earlier too, is really interesting around how it's just, it's kind of, you know, big data AI stuff where you just say, Hey, let's do, let's take these hundred K um, genes and just do some predictions on them. And it's obviously humans wouldn't be able to do it, but um, AI can find these kind of patterns that we not, might not be able to find. And so they're going to go find it for lots of different things. Um, do you think, 
I guess the, 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 the thing that I think about here is, and maybe to kind of produce the other perspective, I guess there's two maybe worries. And overall, I think I mostly agree with you, which is like, let's try to like have less diseases or whatever in society. Um, do you think though that, I guess one thing that people might um, push back against is kind of the inequality piece. You know, I think right now IVF costs something like um, 10,000 bucks. And so how would you, you, you could see, imagine reality where it's like, oh, all the people who do IVF, who have all the money, they get to have no breast cancer. And then all the poor folks, they don't get to have, uh, they don't do IVF and they are still kind of have breast cancer. Is that, tell me how you think about inequality with this. So that is a great question. And um, let me say that you're now talking about what we would call second order effects. So, so the first order effect is you're creating a great benefit for the family. Yeah. Okay. And so number one, that's the main goal of the company is to create that benefit for the family. There are many, many important second order effects that we as a society need to discuss. And absolutely, that's why. And, and, and you know, someone who disagrees with me and says, you know what, Steve, I think in the long run, these second order effects are going to be worse than the benefit that you're actually giving this family. I'm all ears to have a calm scientific debate or conversation about why they think the second order effects are going to be worse than what we consider the highly positive first order effects. But I don't want someone just yelling at me and, and calling me names, you know, with, with, without reason. Now, hey, Steve, four eyes, you know. <laughs> yeah, or whatever. Or actually, no, you're uh, much you're, worse. Uh, much worse. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, um, um, so I do think that it is possible that in the short run, these new technologies will exacerbate inequality because you're giving a new technological tool to a set of people, and it's a subset of people who can afford it. Okay, I want to clarify that although 10k per cycle is maybe a right ballpark figure for IVF in the US, the cost of the, the additional cost of the screening is a small fraction of that. Yeah. So it's the differentiator is not um, who can afford, because we're, we're mainly talking about people who are already doing IVF because they have fertility problems. Yeah. And, you know, it's several million, uh, it's probably a, over a million babies born worldwide uh, each year through IVF. In fact, let me give you the numbers. In Denmark, it's 10% of all babies born wow. are born through IVF. In most developed countries, it's 3 to 5% of all babies born. So if you go to a kindergarten just down the street and there's a bunch of kids playing, one of those kids is probably an IVF baby or more. Okay, So it's, a, it's not a small number, it, but it's the people that are already doing IVF, then that small additional cost to have a better set of information in order to make the embryo choice that is what we're talking about here. We're not talking about the whole IVF industry. I'm not responsible for the whole IVF industry. Yeah. Now, when it comes to human inequality, let's just take a step back. And remember, we live in America where a lot of people don't even have basic health care. <laughs> so, so like now you're talking about, well, okay, this subset of people that are doing IVF and then they either can or can't afford the extra money to do your screening. That's suddenly the most important inequality in our society where we don't even guarantee health care to living people. I mean, sure, it's a it's a valid point. Maybe we should offer the, you know, screening for free. Okay. But we all know what happens there is that the profit motive does drive technology creation. The first people who get the technology tend to be people who are affluent, but then the technology becomes cheaper and it generally gets into the hands of the general rest of the population. So, so I do think though, I do want to acknowledge that I do think in the short run, this set of technologies could and very well may lead to an exacerbation of inequality. But in the long run, if we adopt better social welfare programs like they have in Denmark. So in Denmark, you might ask how, why is it that 10% of babies born in Denmark are born through IVF? Well, I can give you two reasons. One, they have very good gender equality in Denmark. So women tend to get married older. They tend to need it more. The health system covers IVF as part of, you know, as part of their system. So that is why 10% of the population, 10% of all babies born today in Denmark are born through IVF. Now, could we solve that inequality problem in the U.S. if we really wanted to and solve these other healthcare inequality problems? We could. So it's very unfair to blame a small tech startup for inequality, which is, you know, rampant throughout American society, um, you know, for this one small uh, thing. 
Yeah. But I do think it is an important point, and I'm I'm willing to discuss it. No, totally. And I think, and as you said, you're both willing to discuss it, and you're and you kind of agree, which is that hey, it might happen. Well, I guess we'll find out. But it's it seems you know I don't know if more likely than not, but like it it could happen that yeah, in the short term, this is this could exacerbate inequality. And then the hope though is that in so much of society and quote unquote capitalism, all these things are just like you know, the rich get richer and all these kind of things. And then how can we as a society make sure that we still do good long-term distribution and generational wealth and that kind of stuff? And so, as you say, it's like, hopefully, maybe the hope long-term is, yeah, that IVS costs, you know, it's it's supported by the state and it only costs, you know, 50 bucks a person or something really small and that everybody gets to kind of check out their babies. And then all the babies are um, healthier and, 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 and what have you. And so I think that that is, that makes sense to me. And it, it sounds like, um, I think differentiating short-term and long-term makes sense. Another side of this that I think is interesting, that maybe another worry that people might have, is let's say that even you have a society in which it's fifty bucks for IVF, you know, it's ten bucks for you know the the risk scores, um, and we can and we get better and better at doing this risk score score work around not just um, breast cancer but also around intelligence and things like that. How do you think about? Um, like, let's say we could increase everybody's intelligence, you know, IQ by, you know, by 10 points or whatever, by 20 points, by looking at a couple of embryos and choosing the ones that have the best scores. Is that like, how do you feel about that? Is that a, is that a future that you're excited by and, and want to co-create? Well, I think the typical tech geek response to this is, <laughs> you know, it is generally the quote, smarter kids who develop the new inventions that move society forward. And so if we just generally had a more capable society and more people capable of doing electrical engineering or programming, it seems like it's kind of good. Again, that's the first order effect. The second order effect is, yeah, but what if some groups get ahead of other groups and you have big discrepancies between the average in one group and the other group? That's a terrible outcome. So, you know, if if you came to me tomorrow and said, you know what, Steve, we're going to go to single payer health care like in Denmark. Uh, It's going to be covered by the state. And we're going to make IVF free for people with fertility problems. And we're going to make genetic screening free for everyone who's doing IVF. Voluntary. We're not forcing people to do it. But if they want it, it's free. I would say that's a great solution, right? You solved a bunch of the second order affect problems that I, I think are real problems, right? But that's not under my control. That's not under the tech startups control. That's society that has to make that choice. But that's why I'm talking to you so that people will listen to this podcast and say, wow, these really powerful technologies are coming down the line. They're not intrinsically expensive. The actual cost of genotyping an embryo is, is extremely low. But um, And if society, if the government national healthcare system said, yeah, this is part of national healthcare. Now we're going to cover it. We're going to do it at scale. Everybody could have. Yeah. 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 I agree. I think, um, I do think there is, as you said, there is this kind of weird part of the weird thing with like polygenic risk scores and this, this kind of reality is that there's just like these short term, there's first order effects and there's second order effects. And some of the second order effects might be inequality. And then there are these kind of longer term effects, which I think just make people a little bit more worried, which is like, it's okay to have this, the beginning thing of like, you know, making there be less disease in the world, but then this kind of weird slippery slope of like radically rewiring or rewriting kind of, um, and like increasing the IQ of everybody on earth. Like people have this natural kind of, um, I think gut reaction, like against that, especially because they're worried about some of the inequality pieces, but also just like at a base level, it's like, wow, that might be like too different from what things are today. Um, so I don't know. I think, I think it's an interesting, do you think, I mean, what, what that makes me think about more generally, and then we'll kind of maybe transition a bit is, do you think, you know, kind of moving away from polygenic risk scores specifically, um, are there things that you are kind of the most excited about um, from a kind of a biotech perspective? And then maybe something that you're also like the most worried about? Well, just confining it to this particular range of topics instead of talking about super viruses or, or you know, <laughs> okay. uh, and, you know, bacteria or something like this, just confining it to genomics. Um, I would say, so first to just to respond to what you just said about people being a little nervous about the long-term consequences. I I actually agree with you. As I said, this people a thousand years from now are going to look back and say this century was this inflection point in humans taking control of their own evolution for better or worse, right? So, So the reason, again, why I'm doing your podcast is society needs to understand all this stuff And I want society collectively to decide this is a good step. 
we're going to move forward or there's not a good step. Let's 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 hit pause for a while. OK, now a much more powerful technology than embryo selection. So in embryo selection, we're talking about picking the best out of five or best out of 10 or best out of 20 embryos. Um, by the way, with with younger women freezing their eggs now, it's not uncommon for us to have uh, patients uh, who have 20 or 30 embryos. Okay. So we're talking, not necessarily talking about choosing one out of four. We're talking about maybe choosing one out of 30. Okay. So as powerful as that may be, it's much more powerful to just go in and directly edit the embryos. And that technology is going to be upon us. Uh, I would say, you know, we had that early false start in China, mm-hmm. but yeah. you know, the, 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 the CRISPR editing technologies are getting better and better. So it will be safe and effective relatively soon, I think within a decade. And so within a decade, people are going to think of embryo selection as this warm, cuddly, familiar, safe thing. And the real uh, people at the, at the edge, the people who are pushing the boundaries, are going to be gene editing their baby, their, their embryos. And there'll be an incredible societal discussion about that. Um, the same science that drives polygenic prediction, when you have the predictor, when you have the algorithm, when the algorithm builds, the, the learning algorithm builds the predictor, you can look in the predictor and say, oh, these are the places where if I edit, I will not just get 10 IQ points, I will get 100 IQ points, or I will get, you know, not a slightly healthier kid, but I, I will get a kid who has a life expectancy of 125 or, or 150. So that's what is really ahead of us probably in the next decade or two, honestly. Yeah, that is a, um, yeah, I agree with that, that uh, differentiation there. And yeah, th- yeah, as you say, it's cool. Or it's interesting to know that's coming down the pipeline soon. And it, uh, it makes me think also of like a version of this, which is like, uh, if I'm saying this right, in vitro gameotosis, gameotosis, which is where you have the embryos. And then instead of, instead of doing the whole process of having a whole nother baby and then having that person live and then procreate and getting a new embryo, you just have that kind of embryo create another embryo. And so you can have this kind of evolutionary process where instead of just choosing from one generation, you choose the best from the first generation of 10 and choose the next best from the, and then that one produces 10. And then you kind of choose, is that, is that another thing that's coming down the pipeline or is that more science fiction? Yeah. So you're, you're mentioning another super powerful technology that is uh, also, I think, going to be playing a role. I, I would say gene editing of human embryos will become a real issue, a real possibility, safe and effective. Uh, and therefore, you know, under serious consideration in a lot of countries before what you just described is ready. But I I do want to say that using stem cell technologies today, we can generate effectively an unlimited number of mouse and rat eggs for reproductive purposes. And it's a small step from that process to being able to do it with humans. And you start with a skin cell. And then you use this uh, stem cell stimulation technology to make the skin cell revert back into an egg cell. Induced pluripotent stem cells, maybe. That's exactly yeah, it, yeah. yes. <laughs> that That is a you know complicated wet lab set of technologies that obviously uh, they have it working, as far as I understand, quite well in mouse and in rat and other systems. I'm not sure how long it'll take to get working in human, but even if we're working perfectly in human right now, people would be a little bit concerned about, okay, what is the quality of these eggs? Is there going to be some issue with my kid later on? Let's watch a few generations of monkeys that we produce this way grow up first before, it, you know. So my in my rough thinking, I think CRISPR editing of human embryos will become more of an issue before will become an issue before this other thing becomes an issue, but they will both be issues in, I think your and my lifetime. Yeah, yeah. Rewriting the gene is, is coming in hot. Um, so let's, let's kind of transition now to, um, I wrote it here on our, the little questions I sent you before and is your time with the Twitter mob. Um, and so yeah. maybe what I would love to just hear from you is, and honestly, for people who are listening to this, it's like, you know, for you to be on a podcast, for me to have you on the podcast, some people see that as like a cancelable offense or whatever. I'm not sure. Um, but tell me, give you kind of, you give me an overview of the experience. Um, what was kind of the mob slash movement saying and what was your kind of like defense to it? Yeah. So uh, just to recap this, cause it's not, I, you know, I, I'm a pretty obscure individual, so I'm sure most of your listeners don't even know what you're talking about right now. Yeah, 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 totally. So um, up until summer of 2020, 
I was the vice president for research at Michigan State. So I was overseeing a research budget of $700 million a year. And I think I had maybe almost a thousand people, over 600 people reporting up to me uh, through the university uh, in laboratories and supercomputing facilities. We have a gene editing lab. You know, we have all kinds of stuff on the campus. So it's a position of some significant authority. And in that kind of position, you're very subject, or so I learned, to all kinds of crazy political stuff. So uh, when George Floyd, the George Floyd tragedy happened in Minneapolis, that was that summer, um, when that happened, on the back of that, there were all kinds of uh, social movements um, including, I think one of them was stop STEM or something like this, like all science should stop because of, because we should stop and think about George Floyd or something like this. Um, so there were all kinds of, you know, in the heat of it, I'm not criticizing the activists who were, you know, outraged by what happened to George Floyd. It was a kind of just organic thing that bubbled up. But one of the things that happened, uh, on our campus was the graduate employee union, um, which had kind of been taken over, I think, by a small group of very far left graduate students, uh, attacked me. And they attacked me for a bunch of things. For example, you know, just working on genomics, human genetics makes you a eugenicist, right? So, so they called me a eugenicist and a racist. And um, one of the things they attacked me over was that uh, there's a researcher on our campus, a psychologist, very distinguished psychologist who studies police decision-making under pressure. And so he has a simulator in which he uh, puts real police officers in the simulator and they have, to, they have to watch a specific situation, like they've stopped a car and there's somebody in the car and the guy reaches into his glove compartment and they have to decide whether to take their gun out, whether to point their gun, whether to use their gun. So it's, it's decision-making under pressure and this researcher had published a bunch of work, both about police behavior in the simulator that he constructed. And by the way, he was funded by the National Science Foundation. He had, you know, half million dollar grants, you know, to do this kind of stuff um, and published in some of the leading journals on this. He had published papers not just on the behavior of the police in the simulators, but he had done statistical analysis of police shootings in general. And he had found that if you adjust for the rate at which police have high pressure interactions, so high intensity interactions with a particular group, say African-Americans or Asian-Americans or white Americans, that there is no excess rate of police shootings against that group. Once you normalize to the rate, once you divide by the rate at which they're having to deal in a very tense situation, like i.e. They're, they're pursuing somebody who fits a description, mm -hmm. uh, you know. So once you adjust for that, there was no excess, uh, you know, rate at which police were shooting, say, African-Americans. Now, again, this is science. Social science is not my field. Um, you can argue one way or the other whether this research is correct or not. There's a very prominent African-American economist at Harvard named Roland Fryer, who did a, a similar big data analysis of this and came to the same conclusion as our professor Cesario. Now, I defended Cesario's work. Cesario's work was referenced in the Wall Street Journal right around the time of George Floyd. And the, the most Orwellian thing I've ever seen happen, uh, happened where the university first said, oh, isn't it amazing the re important research of Dr. Cesario was quoted in the Wall Street Journal. Then the next day under attack from this graduate employees union, they reversed it and they apologized saying that they, they re regretted citing this racist research. Uh, about, you know, police violence and actually, yes, uh, defund the police. So, you know, you had crazy stuff like that happening. And this Twitter mob came after me and said this, our vice president for research is a racist because he supports Professor Cesario's research and uh, he works on genomics himself. He must be a racist. Um, so that, that was what happened to me. And our president basically just caved and, um, you know, there was no investigation. There was no like you would think, oh, a major university, Big Ten University, <laughs> top 100 university in the world. Maybe they could appoint a, like a committee to look into this. And say, yeah, is our VPR actually, you know, this secret villain? Yeah. 
Um, is Professor Cesario's research really completely wrong, even though it's been published in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences and the NSF awarded him a $600,000 grant to build the simulator? You know, so did, now you would think of all places, uh, a university would be the place where they would stop and say, oh, is any of this true? Like, is, I read it on Twitter. It must be true. No, wait, that's not the right way to reason. Um, no, but they didn't. Within a week, the president asked me for my resignation. So. Uh, it was not, it was a black eye. It was a black eye on the university and rationality and, you know, just uh, common sense. And um, maybe the worst uh, Orwellian consequence of all this is that Cesario, the professor, psychology professor I've been talking about, withdrew his paper from the proceedings of the National Academy, one of the most prestigious scientific journals in the world. He withdrew his paper as a consequence of all this. Even though he privately told me, and I think he publicly said, he doesn't, he still believes in the conclusions, but he just withdrew it because it, you know, it's harmful. So science that comes to a true conclusion, I'm not saying his conclusion was true because I'm not an expert in this area, but to withdraw a scientific result that you believe is true because you fear a political mob on your own campus means that the university has ceased to function the way it is supposed to function. So um, that's enough about this story. I think, I think I'm, I'm happy to take more questions about, but it's the, really a terrible, it's a terrible uh, instance to recall. I mean, yeah, really, no. Really, and I remember hearing about through say star codex and Scott Alexander, and I'd like been following you a bit. I was like, Oh man, it looks like, and then, and then, and then before this call, I was like, I should probably like look into, because sometimes the Twitter mob gets people. I'm like, oh, maybe the Twitter mob, like I'd say, I'd say 90% of the time, 95% of the time, the Twitter mob was like incorrect, you know, but 5% of the time it's like, yeah. okay, like maybe it's like a little bit more correct or whatever. And in this case, it felt very um, incorrect as I was looking at stuff. And Hey, as you said, it's like for this piece of, of, of research, um, if like, okay, if the, what that's saying is like, there are more, you know, like, uh, you know, black folks who are getting into these like more intense situations with um, police than white folks. And that doesn't, then there's like, okay, if that's what's actually happening, then we need to, let's start helping that out. You know, it's like, and so it's like, let's, you know, that's not saying, we're not saying that's a good thing. We're not saying that's a whatever. We're just saying, hey, is this research true? Let's double check. Oh, is it true? Okay. Let's kind of go deeper on it to actually understand what's going on. Yeah, I, I totally agree with what you just said. So, you know, I, I'm actually a progressive. So I'm actually uh, politically left of center. And so for me, the question is, OK, if we have these police shootings, that's bad. We should look into the cause. If it turns out that the, the general violent crime rate is higher among a particular group of Americans and therefore they're getting shot by the police, of course, that's a bad outcome. But we got to figure out the causality carefully if we want to help these people, right? So if, if the causality is not that, oh, all these police are racist and they're just shooting anybody who's black that they see, if that's not the answer, and the answer is society is discriminating against these people in their jobs, and that's why they're involved in crime, then if we want to help the people, we, we need to fully understand the problem and solve it where the, the real causality is, yeah. not where it it seems to be based on a couple of videos that go viral on social media. Right. Yeah. And Cesario himself would say the same thing. So, so it just really was a tragedy like Roland Fryer, who's African-American who's a Harvard economics professor, Joe Cesario, my colleague at Michigan state, they're trying to achieve the same goals as BLM <laughs> and anybody, uh, you know, progressives, whatever, but they're just a little more data driven in trying to figure out where the problem really is originating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And again, I'm not endorsing Fryer or Cesario's conclusions because it's not my specialty. And I never did endorse saying, oh, I have some reason to be an expert on this. And yes, it's obviously correct. No, but I do as vice president for research, I did defend their right to pursue this important research and to publish their results and to not be attacked based on purely political and ideological grounds. So yeah. anyway, but that, that was, that can, that does not fly in uh, 2020s America. No, no, it doesn't. I think the other thing that I, what I was reading through kind of the posts that the graduate student union was saying, Oh, here's all the bad posts. One of them was interesting. Cause it was like, you essentially were just noting to this, um, 
like a population genetics piece that looked at 10,000 years of human history and showed how like different alleles um, for educational attainment and height and unibrows um, were different across different regions. Um, and and I'm, I'm not sure if I exactly got the data correctly here, but it was something like that, you know, the, some of the East Asians have more of uh, these alleles for educational attainment, but less of the ones to like be taller or whatever. And it's like, and that is, um, and you can just look at it by looking at the, taking the computer and like pointing it at the data. Um, and, and all that you were doing was just saying, you you didn't, you weren't saying one thing one way or the other. You said, given such, I'm just quoting here, given such results, how are researchers to respond when asked to categorically exclude the possibility of genetically mediated average differences between groups? All you're yes. doing is just like, look, this is an important, this, this is, a, it looks like this has happened in the last 10,000 years. Can we actually, this is an intense question. And like, I don't know, what do we think about the question? You know, that's all you're saying is like, this is an intense question. So yeah, let me, well, let me, let me elaborate on that. I'm really glad you brought that up because uh, this, again, like in the case of Cesario's work, this is not my research. The paper that I was, papers that I was, that I referenced in those blog posts are written by professors at Columbia and uh, Oxford University, not my research. These are world-renowned statistical geneticists. And they're asking the question about, it's a deep question about human evolution. And let me, let me phrase it to you this way. If you go to Europe, people in Northern Europe are on average taller than people in Southern Europe. So if you go to Sicily, the average male in Sicily is about three inches shorter than the average male in Stockholm. Okay. So now... Is some of that due to diet? Maybe. Is some of that due to genetics? It seems that way, actually. So as I said, we can predict uh, height from DNA now. And so the alleles that make you a little bit taller are more common in Stockholm than they are in Sicily. Okay. So there seems to be some genetic component to that height gradient as you go north to south uh, or south to north in Europe, height increases. Okay. There is a genetic component to it. Now, if you're interested in human evolution, you might ask, was that due to natural selection or was it just some accident that there's this gradient? There's also a north-south height gradient in China, by, by, for example. So is this due to evolution? Do cold climates somehow favor bigger people and hot clim- and uh, hot warmer climates favor slightly smaller people? These are all open, open scientific questions being investigated the preliminary conclusions of these statistical geneticists is that it seems like natural selection over 10,000 years caused this gradient, that there was something fitness enhancing about being taller in these cold climates and about being somewhat smaller in these uh, more Mediterranean climates. And they wrote papers on this. And while they were doing their genome scans and all this stuff, it's like, well, if I have other predictors like if I have predictors for educational attainment or I have predictors for skin color or I have predictors for anything, I can do exactly the same statistical tests, the same, you know, computer analysis of all these other traits. So all these papers have been published in the last, you know, these are, this research is now at least five years old. So, so, so these are papers that have been consistently published over the last five plus years. And it's giving us a real insight into human evolution Um, there's all kinds of interesting things we know now about like altitude adaption in humans, what genes control that or lactose tolerance, all these things. So there's been a huge increase in our understanding of human evolution coming from this advance in genomic science. But now I was contacted, I was at the national, the, uh, national meeting of the, uh, American genomics, human genetics society and the reporter from the New York Times had written an article saying, oh, yeah, there's all this racist pseudoscience coming out of these geneticists. And I, I'm like, what are you talking about? These are serious researchers. Like, wh- why do you call it, you know, why do you want to call these people racist? Because they are studying human evolution over, on 10,000 year timescales. It's just crazy. So it was those blog posts that got me labeled a racist by the graduate employee union which is just crazy. You know, it's like, oh, I quoted a paper written by some serious scientists 
doing serious science and even their results might even be true. But how does that make me a racist? Yeah. And you quoted the paper and all you did was say, hey, and all that this does is just leads to a kind of intense question. You didn't answer it. You didn't do anything. You just said, hey, and you're essentially you're both kind of agreeing that this is an intense question. And it, that's kind of the funny part about it. It's yeah. like everybody agrees this is an intense question. So in any case, um, but, I'm sorry that the the, 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 I just want to make one more goofy point. Yeah. Uh, one of the GEU people that was attacking me is himself a researcher and he writes papers on this subject. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking to myself, wait, if I if I discuss these papers on my blog, I'm a racist, but you actually write papers like this. You actually analyze. You know, you're doing work. Paper. Yeah. Not just. Yeah. Why, yeah. Why are you're actually in that field? I'm not even in that field. How, how am I a bad guy? But yeah. anyway, so. Um, well, I, I think, um, I guess, yeah, I think that you did a good, as far as I could tell the it's great. I mean, writing for 20 years on the internet, it's, you're going to get stuff, you know, get cancelable offenses and, um, and especially within the world of genes. And so um, I hope that, um, yeah, and if anybody who's listening to this, you know, either disagrees with either of us, or you know, wants to put a note in the comments, or if you you think about what you think about genetic screening or whatever, you know, feel free to let us know. Um, we're we're open to uh, to chat about. Of course, we don't really know exactly what the right call is here, but um, hoping for the best. Is there any place, by the way, Steve, as we wrap up, that folks can either find you um, either on Twitter or your blog or something like that, or the company? I have a Twitter handle. I have a blog. Uh, those are the best places to look for my content. I actually even have a podcast that oh. uh, that uh, people can listen to. So, you know, maybe when you do the show notes, you can ask me for those links. I'll link them. In I'll link them right in there and that'll be great. And I think, yeah, the blog, the blog it's great. I mean, the, if you want to see graphs, if you want uh, every, you know, a couple times a week to see a new graph, you know, go to Steve's blog. Um, well, thank you so much, Steve. And thank you everybody uh, for listening today and goodbye. Thanks so much for listening today. If you like the show, please give us a five-star podcast review or subscribe on YouTube. And if you'd like to chat about this episode with a community of amazing, smart, ambitious, divergent people, come on by and join our Discord. You can find it at root.co. That's R-O-O-T-E dot co. And then finally, if you'd like to contribute to these ideas being shared more widely in society, you can support the podcast production team at patreon.com slash Lindbark. That's patreon.com slash R-H-Y-S-L-I-N-D-M-A-R-K. Thank you so much.